This week we have the story of Ruth, and the story of Ruth is one of great faith. Faith that is reminiscent of the fathers, Abraham and of Rebecca too, because remember of course that Abraham left his land, his family, everything that he knew, and followed the call of God to a new land based on the covenant of God. And Rebecca as well, when Abraham needed a wife for Isaac. He sent his servant, and Rebekah also left her family, her land, and came to this new land to marry Isaac, a man she had never met, because of the promises of God. And here Ruth does the same thing. She leaves her land and her people in order to follow not only Naomi, that's part of it, but it's not the whole of it, not only to follow Naomi, but also to be a part of God's covenant. By her faith, she becomes not only a part of the people of God and a part of his covenant with his people, but even more so, she becomes the great-grandmother of King David and through him, of course, the ancestor of Christ. And so the lesson that we, we learn from Ruth, as we do from so many of these Old Testament um, scriptures is that we don't need great strength or wisdom or wealth or cunning in order to do great deeds. By faith, by faith, Ruth became not only a part of the covenant people, but the ancestors of Christ. And when we learn to put our trust and our faith in God and his promises, we can do great things as well. Law and gospel, the law would be sometimes it seems like God has abandoned us as it seemed to Naomi that God had abandoned her. But of course, God was working all things for good. And sometimes it seems like the thing that God wants us to do, the thing he's calling us to do is impossible as it would have looked for Ruth following Naomi back to her land. It would have seemed like the craziest, most ridiculous thing to do. And yet, by faith in God's promise, promises God does not allow his people to become ashamed. That is to say, he does not forsake his promise, but he fulfills them and he proves that those who trust in him by faith, not because of their great works, but by faith through Jesus Christ will not be put to shame, but he will fulfill his promises. Now, another question we could ask is, what is this story doing here? I mean, this is something that takes place during the time of the Judges, but it's not a part of the book of Judges. And whereas the book of Judges is concerned with those who are rulers and mighty men of valor who save Israel from their enemies, people like Gideon and Samson who go out and change the, the history of the nation of Israel by delivering them from, from the Philistines and, and whatnot. This is the story of just simply one young Moabite woman. She's not even a member of the house of Israel. But this one young Moabite woman who finds a husband. Uh, really, that's it. She leaves her land of Moab and, and finds a husband in the land of Israel. So why? what is this story doing here in, in God's word? Well, the answer, of course, is we jump to the, the end. And one commentator, I love this one commentator mentions, he says, you know, when I receive letters from friends or family, uh, a lot of times... I, 
I don't even have to read the whole letter. I can just jump to the end of the letter, and there I find out the true the true purpose of the letter, what they really want. Uh, the first page or so might just be them saying hi or whatever, but you, you go to the end, you find out what it's really, really all about, and that's exactly what happens here. We jump to the end of Ruth, and we find out, oh, she's the father of Obed, who's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. And so God includes this in Scripture because this is the line which leads to Jesus. And of course, that is the whole point of Scripture. The whole point of Scripture is following that story, which is going to bring about the fulfillment that God gave to Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, the coming of the Messiah to save us from our sins. And this is a part of that story, that line that brings forth the Messiah. Now, from an earthly standpoint, of course, you, you jump to the end and you recognize that this story was not written down until the time of David, because at the end of the story, it says uh, Ruth uh, gave birth to Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and, and Jesse was the father of David. So for the writer to, to write that, obviously, David must already be born, and it's reasonable to assume he's king, and he's having this kind of this family history. Maybe this was a, a family story that he heard from uh, his father and his father heard from their father. Maybe Ruth was even still alive at the time. Great-grandmothers sometimes, you know, live to see. And so maybe David even knew her and met Ruth uh, himself and heard the story just from him. And he has this, this family story that uh, he apparently he wants written down. And so from the kingdom's point of view, from David's point of view, okay, that might be why it's written. But of course, God is behind it all, causing it to be written down uh, so that we know this story that is bringing forth the fulfillment of Christ. So, the book of Ruth begins by introducing us to Naomi and Elimelech, who are from the tribe of Judah, uh, living in or near Bethlehem. But they have a problem. There's a great famine in the land. They don't have anything to eat. And so Elimelech takes kind of a, a extreme reaction here. He sells his land, and he moves to the land of Moab. Now, of course, this was God's doing, even if he didn't tell Elimelech to do it. We can see how God is behind it, just as God is behind causing David to have this written down. Uh, so God also is behind Elimelech here, and he has his own reasons for wanting Elimelech to move to the land of Moab. The Moabites were descendants of Lot. You remember Lot, uh, Abraham's uh, nephew. Um, so the Moabites were descendants of Lot through one of his daughters, and that's a story we probably don't need to get into with the kids right now. But you remember how uh, when Lot and his daughters escaped from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, they went up into the mountains and there Lot's daughters got him drunk and lay with him. And they had children through their own father. And from those children, then we get uh, the Moabites and some others as well. So these were nephews, in a sense, of the children of Israel. They were related uh, through lot but they were nevertheless people who were always kind of butting heads with the israelites when the israelites were wandering in the wilderness they had some problems with the moabites and and since then they've had some problems with the moabites attacking them as well so the people of israel would not have been particularly welcome in moab and the moabites would not have been particularly welcome in israel it kind of works both ways nevertheless the lord is behind this. Naomi and Elimelech, they do this. They sell their land. They move down to Moab. There, of course, Elimelech dies. And Naomi and Elimelech's two sons, Malone and Chilion, marry two women. Malone marries Ruth. 
and Chilion marries Orpah. And that's something we find out a little bit later in Ruth. At the beginning, it just says that they marry Ruth and Orpah, and it doesn't tell us which is which. But later on, we find that it, Ruth is the, is the wife of Malone. And they lived there in Moab for 10 years, and then both of Naomi's sons, Malone and Chilion, die as well. So Naomi is left alone with Ruth and Orpah. Orpah. Naomi decides to head back to the land of Judah. There's nothing left for her anymore in the land of Moab. Both her husband and her sons are dead. There's no one to take care of her. There's no one to provide for her. And she's heard that the famine is over back in Judah. She tries to convince her two daughters to stay. At first, they both insist on going with, but uh, eventually Orpah decides, yep, that's the better chance. And she returns to her family. But Ruth, of course, does not. And this is an absurd thing for Ruth to do. There was really no hope for her back in Judah. As I mentioned, she was a Moabitess. She was not of the people of Israel. Uh, she was at least, you know, 25, right? Assuming she got married pretty young at the age of 14 or 15, which wouldn't have been that unusual. Well, this is 10 years later. She's 25 now, and 25 is still pretty young in America. But in ancient times, you're getting up there. <laughs> you're not, you're uh, kind of running out of your marriageable age, so to speak, uh, if you're not already past it uh, by the age of 25. And so just her age in and of itself would have made it difficult for her to find a husband. But now she's going back to a land that she's not a part of, uh, a land of, of people that are not exactly friendly with the Moabites. Uh, her chances are pretty low of finding a husband back there. And of course, Ruth, or sorry, Naomi can't provide for her. Uh, Naomi has no one herself to provide for her. Uh, and without a husband or a son or a close brother who can inherit the land, the women can't inherit the land, the men have to inherit the land. Um, so without a close man, male, relative, husband, brother, son, uh, to inherit the land and then to uh, work it and provide for Naomi. Naomi is in trouble, much less Ruth. But Ruth, of course, will not abandon her mother-in-law. A lot of times what Ruth says here, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. A lot of times that's used, of course, in weddings as a declaration of great love. And for sure, Ruth is declaring her love for Naomi and her willingness to help and stick by her mother-in-law, despite the fact that it, it really puts her in a very difficult position. She has a much better chance of finding a husband back uh, in her native land and also of being provided for and taken care of by uh, her father or her brothers back there. But despite that, she's going to go and make sure that Naomi is taken care of. So it is a declaration of love, but it is also a declaration of faith. And notice how, remember how when God speaks to Abraham, what is the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Abraham? Uh, that covenant is land, people, God, Messiah. Uh, this is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. I will give you the land of Canaan. I will make you into a great people, a great nation. I will be your God, and from you all the people of the earth will be blessed. The promise of the Messiah. Now, keep that in mind and notice what Ruth says to Naomi in verse 16. 
She says, wherever you go, I will go. She's you're going to follow Naomi back to the land of Israel, right? Uh, wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. So the, she wants to be a part of the people of Israel. And your God will be my God. So she's following the Abrahamic covenant there. Uh, she's using the language of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, I want to be a part of that covenant land. I want to be a part of that covenant people. I want to be a part of that covenant God. Your God will be my God. And then if there was, if there's any question about her faith here, you look at verse 17 and she says, the Lord, the Lord, and it's all capital letters there, which means it's that personal name, Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahweh, do so to, do so to me and more also of anything but death parts you and me. And so she even swears her oath to Naomi here in the name of Yahweh, not the gods of the Moabites, but the God of Israel, Yahweh. Uh, and I'm going to remain with you until death. So it certainly is a declaration of her love for Naomi, but it's also a declaration of her faith and her desire to be a part of that covenant, of that covenant with God that Naomi was part of. So Naomi and Ruth return, and when Naomi comes back to her, her hometown here, people recognize her, but she rebukes them. She says, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. The name Naomi means pleasant, but the name Mara means bitterness. And so Naomi is confessing that the Lord has, and she even says this, the Lord has afflicted me. You have to admire Naomi's faith here as well because she doesn't she doesn't attempt to justify the Lord's actions or explain the Lord's actions. She simply accepts them. Now she's a, she's a little bitter about it. There's a little bit of a, of a complaint or rebuke. The Lord has done this to me. Uh, she's maybe not exactly happy about it, but she doesn't try to find a reason uh, for what the Lord has done to her. She simply says, this is the Lord's choice, and, and she accepts it. And we're going to see uh, Naomi's great faith in a little bit as well. So Naomi accepts the Lord has afflicted me, and, and of course we see that the Lord has his own reasons. It seems like a pretty difficult thing that the Lord has done to Naomi. Her husband dies, her two sons die, uh, you know, she's left with nothing. But uh, we see that the Lord has his own, we know the Lord has his own reasons for doing it, and he is going to work it all for good. So they're back in the land of Judah, and Ruth goes out to glean. Now, a little bit of a reminder. In the book of Leviticus, where God lays down the laws that govern the the land of Israel, uh, he told the, the Israelites that when they reap the harvest of the land, and I'm quoting here from Leviticus 19.9, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Okay, so what he's saying them there is when you harvest your land, the corners, you know, you imagine a square field, um, the corners are to be left unharvested. Any any grain that grows in the corners, you're to leave it. And also, you're not to go back over. Once you harvest, uh, you know, if you miss anything, you're supposed to leave it. Now, the corners of the field are really going to be the least productive part of the field. Uh, you can imagine that's where the weeds are most likely to grow, uh, where they're most likely to get trampled, etc., etc., like that. So it's the least productive part of the field. But... This is God's way of providing for those who don't have land or who don't have a job, who, who can't support or provide for themselves in any other way. 
that the farmers were to leave these, these corners of the field, the least productive part of their field, and those like Ruth and Naomi and others who were destitute could come and they could pick from these corners. They could also go over the field and anything that the harvesters missed or maybe fell, uh, they themselves could pick up. And so Ruth goes out to do this. And as she's gleaning, she you got to go to a lot of different fields to get enough to eat, right? Because it's only a little bit in, in each field. Uh, she's going through the fields, uh, attempting to, to glean the harvest here, uh, attempting to get what's left over, and she comes to the field of Boaz. Chapter 2 kind of introduces us to Boaz before Ruth actually gets to her, her field. Uh, it's important to know who he is. He's a man of great wealth. He's of the family of Elimelech, which is, of course, very important because uh, that means he's able to redeem the land. When Naomi and Elimelech left, they sold their land, and a man of his family, a close relative, is the only one that can buy it back. So the only way that Naomi is going to get her inheritance back, or the inheritance of her husband back, and Ruth uh, also, is if... Uh, Ruth marries a man who is able to redeem, who is a close relative, able to redeem that field. So this is very important that he's from the family of Elimelech. We also see in chapter 2, Boaz was a man, a, a man of great faith as well, a man of the Lord, a godly man. Notice how he greets his workers when he comes to the field. He greets them with, the Lord, Yahweh, uh, be with you. And they, they respond in kind. And notice also how what he says to Ruth, he has pity on Ruth, and, and Ruth kind of questions this, like, well, why would you have pity on me? And his response is not that, you know, he was, he had pity on her because of her great beauty or something like that. And was Ruth very beautiful? We don't know. Scripture doesn't, doesn't say anything about um, whether she was, you know, very beautiful or not. But this isn't what Boaz notices, but rather if you look in Ruth 2 verse 12, what he notices is how kind she was to her mother-in-law. And he even says to Ruth, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Uh, because you have dedicated yourself to your mother-in-law, he notices her, her dedication, her love for Naomi and her hard work. And this is what Boaz notices about her. So Boaz, seeing Ruth and finding out who she is and what she's done for her mother-in-law, uh, he provides for her a number of things. He tells her, don't go into any other fields, you know, just glean in my field. And uh, there's four things in particular he gives her. First of all, she can eat the food of the workers. So he's got, he's a wealthy man. He's got his own workers harvesting the field. And, uh, you know, he provides food for them at noon and, and when, when they need to eat. And Ruth can join in with that food. Then also she can drink of their water. She doesn't ha even have to draw the water herself. But uh, the, the men who work for him are supposed to draw water for her and provide it. And she can, she can drink of that. Uh, then, number three, she can glean even among the sheaves. So she doesn't have to just stay to the edges, but she can come into the main field and pick grain there. And, number four, he instructs the workers to purposely drop the grain for her. Uh, so he tells them purposely to leave grain behind so that she has plenty. So Ruth uh, does this. She gleans in his fields, and that night she comes back. And when, when Naomi 
sees her and sees how much she has gleaned, notice that Naomi's response is immediately she knows that someone has taken notice of Ruth. Because Ruth comes back with so much more grain than should be possible just from gleaning in fields. And so Naomi, Naomi is pretty keen, notices what's going on. We, we notice that throughout the book of Ruth that uh, she picks up on things and knows how to take advantage of them. And she immediately notices, okay, somebody must have noticed you. Some must, somebody must have taken pity on you in order for you to come back with this much grain. And when Ruth tells her who it is that was Boaz, Naomi praises the Lord. She says, thanks be to the Lord, because this man who has taken notice of Ruth, this is one of the people who would be able to redeem the land of her husband. For her own sake, for Naomi's own sake, and for the sake of Ruth, she wants Ruth to pursue this. Uh, she knows Boaz has noticed Ruth. She wants Ruth to pursue that. So they wait until harvest is over. They're, they're busy harvesting. Ruth is busy, har busy harvesting. She continues to harvest in Boaz's field. They wait until all that hard work of harvesting is done. Now Naomi says it's time to pursue Boaz, who's taken notice of her, and see if if they can get Boaz to marry Ruth. But, of course, there's a problem. And the problem is that normally it would be the task of the man of the family to go and speak to Boaz and arrange this marriage. However, of course, Ruth and Naomi have no man of the family. Uh, there's no husband, there's no son, there's no brother. There's no one who can go and speak to, Mo to, to Boaz on behalf of Ruth. So Naomi is pretty daring here, and Ruth goes along with it, pretty daring, but uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that they're, they're trusting the Lord's promise as well. She comes up with this plan where she tells Ruth to go and kind of not reveal herself, but just kind of watch and see where it is that Boaz lays down to sleep. And once Bo Naomi, or sorry, once Ruth sees Boaz lay down to sleep, and he falls asleep uh, behind the hay bale, we're told, so he's he's kind of outside, <laughs> fall, fall asleep. Uh, Ruth is supposed to go and uncover his feet, and then lay down at his feet. Now this is a way for Ruth to signal her interest in Boaz without being. It is improper, but it's not being seen by anyone other than Boaz, right? So it's very improper for Ruth to approach Boaz in, in any way. But this way, at least, no one else is going to know what's going on. She comes to him at night. Uh, she uncovers his feet, which was a way of gradually waking him up. She doesn't want to wake him up too quickly and startle him or scare him uh, or, or give any kind of sign that, you know, she's there for an in, improper in, in kind of relationship, you know what I mean by that, but she wants to uh, indicate to him her interest while at the same time being as proper as she can. So by uncovering his feet and laying down at his feet, she's gradually waking him up. His toes are going to get cold or whatever, right? Or maybe the, or his toes are going to get wet from the dew. Uh, he's going to wake up, but gradually, and he's also going to see, oh, she's not... Uh, um, trying to seduce him or anything that like that. She's laying down at his feet. And so this works. Uh, he wakes up. He recognizes her. He understands immediately uh, what she's signaling by this gesture. It would be hard not to. Men can pr be pretty dense when uh, women try and signal their interest sometimes, but it's it's kind of hard not to notice when she lays down at your feet, right? So she, he recognizes what she's doing, uh, and he's pretty excited. 
And we have a glimpse here as to why maybe he didn't approach them about the marriage because uh, he considers himself to be too old. And he's very thankful that Ruth indicated her interest even despite his age. And uh, she didn't go after somebody younger, even even maybe somebody who's rich and young. Now, he's, he's rich as well, but he's old and uh, he's, he's kind of grateful for this opportunity. But there's one more problem. There's one more thing standing in between Ruth and Boaz. And that's the fact that there is one relative closer than Boaz. Boaz, and it's his right, uh, that closer relative, it's his right to redeem the land if he wants. So Boaz has to go and speak to him. So he tells Ruth to lay down to the morning and then to go home. He instructs his servants not to let anyone know that Ruth came to him at night. Again, that would be improper for people to know that and they might think things that aren't true. Uh, so he's protecting Ruth's reputation there. You can get into the Eighth Commandment. And then that day he goes uh, to speak to this, this close relative. Now, uh, he meets him in the gates of the city and he calls uh, a bunch of the elders of the city to witness this, to verify uh, what's about to happen. And he mentions to this man, well, here's this land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Uh, I remember the word brother might not mean brother the way we think of it, but it might mean cousin. It's their close relative anyway. And someone ought to redeem it, and it's your right to redeem it if you want. And so at first, this close relative, whose name we don't know, is fine with that. Okay, I'll, I'll redeem it. Sure, great. Why not? More more land for me. Great, right? Uh, I come on ahead. But then Boaz comes back and he says, but if you're going to redeem the land, then it's also your responsibility to marry this woman, Ruth, who previously was married to Malone and to raise up therefore an heir to Elimelech and Malone uh, through her. And now this close relative doesn't want to have anything more to do with it because he says this will jeopardize my own inheritance. So what's going on there? We got to go back to the Levitical laws about redeeming land. God's law stated that if a brother were to get married and die without producing an heir, so he dies before uh, his wife has a son, then it was the duty of the next brother, the next youngest brother, to marry that woman, to have a son through her, and then that son would be the heir to his older brother, the one that died. And in that way, the inheritance of the older brother and the name of the older brother would not be lost, uh, but he would produce an heir for his older brother. Now, if the man who dies doesn't have a brother, then that duty goes to the next closest relative, the cousin, or whatever. However, this puts uh, the man who marries Ruth, this puts his inheritance in jeopardy because if he only has one son, uh, let's say this close relative marries Ruth and they have one son, but they don't have a second one. Well, that first son is the heir to Elimelech. And so he will be considered Elimelech's descendant and Elimelech's heir and the inheritance of that close relative who married Ruth will be lost. Now, if they have two sons, that's fine. Uh, the second son can be the close relative's heir and inherit his land, and the first son can be Elimelech's. But if they don't have two sons, then his inheritance is lost. And so this is why he says, well, I'm gonna, uh, I'd be putting my own inheritance in jeopardy by doing this. It might get swallowed up under the name of Elimelech, and he's not willing to do that. So, okay, I don't, I don't want to do that, so go ahead. If you want it, Boaz, you can do it. And Boaz calls, calls all the elders then who are there present to witness, to bear witness that this closer relative was given the opportunity and he passed. So he can't come back and claim that later on that Boaz stole his land. And then he gladly and joyfully marries 
uh, Ruth, Boaz marries Ruth, and of course they have at least one heir. Uh, if they have more, we don't know, but they have at least one son named Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And through not through this, not only is the line of Elimelech preserved, but the line leading to Christ is preserved, and both King David and, of course, Christ come in time. The Lord, of course, was behind it the whole time, just as it's the Lord causing it to be written. Uh, so it's the Lord in control to bring about his will, even though it seems like a pretty rough thing for Naomi to go through. Nevertheless, the Lord worked it all for good, and by faith, Ruth becomes the ancestor of Christ. The Lord's blessings on your Sunday school lesson.